hello and welcome to 80% Metal Podcast with me, Hugh Gilmore, and Dr. Pete Olusuga. So myself and Pete were asked on to the No Lift Powerlifting Podcast. Uh, so the No Lift Podcast is run by Arthur Lynch, uh, who's recently completed his PhD in muscle physiology. Arthur is quite a smart guy, not only for the fact that he has a PhD, he's also represented Ireland in uh, powerlifting and competed in the World Championships. He deadlifts 307 kilograms, which he gets embarrassed about whenever you talk about that. So uh, I'm putting that in because I like embarrassing him. But more to the point, though, Arthur's a really intelligent guy, and his podcast actually interviews a, a, a number of really key people in terms of health and fitness um, and powerlifting. And one of the episodes that I really enjoyed uh, is the ones with Connor Heffernan, where he talks about the history of weight training, powerlifting, bodybuilding, and Olympic weightlifting. I think it's an absolute excellent uh, podcast to listen to. So we would just want to thank Arthur for inviting us on to discuss the topic of burnout and dropout within powerlifting from an athlete perspective. Back, 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 ticket, ticket, ticket. Welcome to the No Lift Podcast, coming to you from Ireland, hosted by Arthur Lynch. Hello there, and you are very welcome back to another episode of the No Lift Podcast. And in this episode, I'm joined by Hugh Gilmore and Dr. Pete Alushaga, who are the co-hosts of the recently established 80% Mental Podcast a podcast dedicated to covering all things sports psychology. And it's a really fantastic uh, resource for people, and I, w- I would highly recommend you, you check it out. In this podcast, Dr. Pete, Hugh, and myself have a discussion around the topics of burnout and dropout as it relates to powerlifting. And I, I was really keen to get both Pete and Hugh on for this one to to try to leverage their expertise in in this area. Now, those of you who have been following NoLift for a while will be familiar with Hugh. He has obviously been on the show on more than one occasion, so it wasn't necessary to ask him to provide an introduction to himself or a backstory, uh, because we've already done that before. But I think in my enthusiasm for this discussion, I forgot to ask Dr. Pete to provide um, a bio and th- that's really doing him a, a disservice because uh, there's there, there's quite a list of accolades to get through. So Dr. Pete's background is in sports coaching and in addition to that, he has an undergraduate degree in psychology from Sheffield Hallam University. Uh, He's worked as a basketball coach for many years. He also has a master's degree in exercise science and a PhD in sports psychology, uh, which was focusing on stress and coping within elite sports coaches, which won the Association of Applied Sports Psychology Dissertation of the Year Award in 2012. Currently, his research focuses on burnout and well-being in sports, particularly as it relates to coaching. He is also the course leader 
of the Masters in Sport and Exercise Psychology degree at Sheffield Hallam University. So I think it was really important to get that in there and it would have been remiss of me not to mention um, that, that list of accolades. But with that all said now, let's get straight into the discussion with Dr. Pete and with Hugh Gilmore. Okay, welcome back to another episode of the No Lift Podcast with myself, Arthur Lynch. And for this episode, I am really excited to announce I am joined by returning guest, Hugh Gilmore, and first-time guest, Dr. Pete Olasoga. Um, did I get it right? Yeah, it's close enough. <laughs> <laughs> he literally told me how to say that about a minute ago, and I've already forgotten. <laughs> I knew that would happen. Gents, how's it going? How are you doing? Yeah, doing well. Um, obviously, we are recording this in the middle of a pandemic, and uh, I'm a university lecturer, so our university's moved everything online for the foreseeable future, so I'm sitting at home now uh, recording this. So, but yeah, everything's going okay, though. Yeah, I've, I've had, like, a s- small snippet into that experience, because, like, when I say I do a bit of teaching... I do one hour once a week over over Zoom, so I have a, a, a little bit of an idea of what it's like, but really I don't. <laughs> but man, lectures over Zoom are weird when everyone turns off their camera and they're muted and you know they're there, but they're not really. Yeah, you talk into a wall of uh, of tiles with people's names displayed on them. But, you know, I, I was saying to, to a group yesterday, if you're comfortable turning your camera on, do so, because it's nice to see faces. But, you know, also, if you'd rather not, that's fine, too. Um, but, yeah, it's a it's a different experience. But, you know, it's one that we're all getting used to. Mm. And so, Hugh, how are, how are you getting on? Uh, things are fine with me. Um, I have been confined to my house and working remotely with uh the two sports that i work with so that's been interesting uh it's had its benefits and i suppose its drawbacks um yeah one i'm not late for meetings because i don't have to be anywhere um and the, the upside being though that you know you've got some free time as well in between things where you know less downtime but yeah i'm curious what do you lecture on for one hour a week arthur uh, i'm teaching the physiology component of an anatomy and physiology module for speech and language therapists. Was that like the tongue's red and made of muscle? It's it's very general physiology, and I I kind of have a degree of sympathy for the students because it's one of those things where you know this is a notorious issue with modules that are delivered generally because you know if you if you do like a general maths module or a general physiology module or whatever it is. There's only going to be bits of it that are relevant to you. And at the time, you won't know what they are. And then when it comes to later on in the course, when you realize the bits that were relevant to you, you have them long forgotten. Fair enough, fair enough. That's my take on it anyway. I don't know if you would agree with that, Pete. Yeah, no, absolutely. So one of the positive things that has come out of lockdown is that you guys have taken the opportunity to start your own podcast. And like I was saying off air in advance of this discussion, I was almost like a a student trying to cram the night before an exam yesterday, trying to get through as many episodes as as I could just to uh, get an idea of it. And my biggest regret is that I didn't do that sooner, to be honest, because it's absolutely 
phenomenal content uh, between the topics that you guys are discussing, the guests you've had on, and just just the the quality of like the sound and the attention to detail that's put in, like the the music that's playing over uh, the intros. It's it's absolutely fantastic, and I would I would really encourage any listener when they finish this episode uh, of No Lift to go and check out the Eighty Percent Mental Podcast. It's absolutely phenomenal stuff guys i have to hand it to you no thank you very much cheers that's that's a big compliment arthur um yeah i think it, it's mostly pete's pete's effort pete's uh, a little bit uh, of attention to detail freak um compared to my list standards so uh yeah pete's done a lot of work there on that and making it sound absolutely wonderful it also helps as you can hear he's got a nice bbc accent unlike us two people <laughs> Well, I don't think I'll be reading bedtime stories on CBBS anytime soon. But <laughs> so today's topic, Arthur, what have we got in store? Yeah, so I guess the the main reason that I uh, reached out to you guys to to get this discussion going was to have a chat about burnout and dropout, and we will talk about those two concepts um, and how how they're related but different. Um, in a little while, uh, but I suppose if we could just outline maybe the um, the genesis of why I wanted to explore this with you guys. So I was actually uh, reading a recent paper that was um, published in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research, and as we, uh, as you correctly pointed out, Hugh, it has a bit of a clickbaity title, um, and the the thing about it that interested me was actually an artifact of. The results it wasn't the main intent of why the study was conducted but the title was long-term strength adaptation a 15-year analysis of powerlifting athletes and when i read that title i thought oh class they they followed um athletes over a 15-year period and that is very much not what they did <laughs> so they took what they did essentially was they took the Australian equivalent of your open powerlifting database, which had meet results for however many athletes documented over a 15-year period. So in reality, most of them were in and out of the sport well within that time. And the, uh, the thing that caught my attention was they reported that like in the, in the vast majority of cases people are in and out of the sport within about two two and a half years and that was an interesting finding for me because that pretty much is in line with what i've observed in the field that people get into powerlifting and they're gone within a couple of years and as i was saying to you hugh um uh, when we were chatting about this briefly last week you know as a as a friend of mine who's you know heavily involved in the Irish Powerlifting Federation once said to me, you know, if we ever want to make anything in this bastard sport, we got to keep people in it, you know? So I suppose I'm, I'm just pondering if there's more that we could be doing prospectively uh, to try and retain as many lifters as we can. Obviously, people are going to come and go. That's fine. That happens in every sport. And that will maybe coincide with different transitions in people's lifetime and things like that. You know, p- 
people leaving school, people moving, um, relationships, all that kind of thing. And that, that sort of thing happens, but are there things that we as coaches can do to do something to attenuate the, the level of dropout, if that makes sense? So I'm going to stop talking now because uh, I'm afraid I'm going to say something stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose, Pete, um, you recently dropped out of basketball in the past couple of years. Um, um, you've obviously experienced within basketball. I don't think while powerlifting's uh, a separate sport from basketball, I don't think they're different. And I don't think that all sports are different in terms of why athletes would drop out or burn out. With uh, within different within different time frames and reasons, I think the study that you mentioned about dropping out within two years in powerlifting is interesting because like those beginner gains are, are lovely, um, and obviously we keep people very motivated. Um, but again, like Pete, have you any experience in basketball? Like how how long is someone's career in basketball, or what's the average dropout? time for a newbie who's come to a club have you any thoughts on that does it differ um i guess it, it very much depends on on the reasons for that dropout so you know you mentioned my case i dropped out of basketball but that fits very much in with what arthur was just talking about in terms of career transitions you know i got old and it was time for me to stop playing because i was old um so that wasn't necessarily to do with uh, burnout or any of the things associated with burnout. Um, I think, I think you see this in all sports in any sports There's a, uh, and I think it's to do with the culture of sport in itself that potentially leads to athletes experiencing that drop in motivation, um, experiencing all of the things associated with, with what burnout actually is. Um, I couldn't tell you exact sort of figures for that in, in basketball. Um, but certainly there is an attrition, I think, especially with young athletes, um, where perhaps I think that perhaps um, they get so tied in with their identity as being an athlete. And then when things don't necessarily start to go their way, like you said, when those beginner gains start to drop away, um, suddenly their sort of achievements in that sport become lesser. And that's something that can certainly contribute towards that feeling of burnout. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose if I was to just add a little bit more context to maybe help elucidate these things a little bit more. So my interpretation of what I think is partly the reason why this is occurring is because the very common trajectory of a novice powerlifter. So they get into powerlifting like he was mentioned, they get these beginner gains, you know, maybe they do their first comp and it's all exciting. They get, everything's a PB at that point. And they think, right, I can't wait to do my next comp. And they train really hard for it. And then they get more gains. And then eventually, you know, it does get to a point where you have to input more and more to get less and less. Uh, so at some point, the gains are going to dry up, so to speak. Maybe they have a meet where their 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 lifts are down on a previous competition and maybe that's coinciding with them starting starting to fall out of love with the sport maybe they're having to deal with some nasty injuries things like that and at that point perhaps the coping mechanisms required to be able to 
um, manage all those things, they haven't been developed. Mm-hmm. Uh, so at that point, they say, well, screw this. I'm out of here. Mm. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. I think I, I know you said you wanted to chat about it a little bit later on, but I think it's probably important at this point to to really differentiate between what burnout actually is and mm. what dropout is, because like you said, they are they are two different things. Um, and burnout is this this experience of being physically and emotionally exhausted, um, having a sense of reduced personal accomplishment. So we don't feel like we're um, achieving anymore. And again, that might tie in with that sort of lack of beginner gains, you know, where everything's going really well to start with. And then all of a sudden you feel like you're not quite achieving as much. Um, and then a, a, what's called sport devaluation, which is just a, a loss of interest in the sport. They kind of don't really care about it as much as I perhaps used to. So burnout is that experience of, of those things. And a lot of the research points to the fact that it's the exhaustion factor, which is really the main component of burnout. Um, withdrawal from sport or dropout of sport is different. So people can experience burnout, that exhaustion and lack of sense of accomplishment and, and devaluation. People can experience that and still remain in the sport. So you don't have to drop out. You don't have to withdraw for it to be classed as burnout. And similarly, um, you know, it's possible that dropout might be an eventual consequence of feeling burnt out, um, but it doesn't have to happen. And also we can drop out of sport without being burnt out. Like I said before, there's a whole number of reasons why we might do that. There's other things going on in our lives. We get old, we get injured, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it is important to separate those two concepts a little bit, um, at the same time noting that yes, they are potentially related. I think, um, you know, I agree with Pete's point there about the distinction between the two. And when I thought, you know, we're going to be coming on this podcast, I'm sure there's hardly any research on dropout or burnout within powerlifting because it's such a niche sport. There's a really interesting systematic review um, by Crane and Temple in 2014. And it discussed a number of the features common uh, in terms of dropout within youth sports. And there was five sort of key features. Um, there were lack of enjoyment, uh, change in perception of competence, um, social pressures, competing priorities, and then physical factors. And if you think in those those five features, you've then got the, the solution to solve the dropout to, to make something of this bastard sport, as, as your friend put it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you're a coach or a club, what is it your lifters are actually enjoying? Because if they are not enjoying it, um, why are they not enjoying it and how do you make it more enjoyable? And I think there's always this idea within a sport and I've been involved within weightlifting, you know, that the people who become coaches and invest time in it are very driven and see a lot of value and have a lot of passion for the sport. But actually the people they might be interacting with don't have that same value or passion in the sport. And the sport fulfills a different function. So while, you know, I might as a weightlifting coach say, this is great, do this, you know, weightlifting is wonderful. Uh, you'll be a big, lovely, strong person and have some degree of speed. The person who's actually lifting weight might actually enjoy it for the social aspect of being part of that club. They might enjoy it because it gets them out of the house away from their family because their family are horrible. Um, or it could get them uh, any other number of other benefits so I think as a coach or as a somebody who might run a club 
what you should be asking yourself is what do my members really get from this and what is their reason for enjoying it? And it's at that point, once you start to understand their motivations, you can dial that up or dial that down as needed. And again, even if you look at this across a population of your membership, if you've got 50 members, you know, highlight who you think the five or 10 people who are are not going to make it the next three years and ask them why they are doing it now and what they enjoy about it because that will give you insight. So while I could look you know, at that, that model and those five factors that were highlighted, um, I think it's also important for coaches to ask those questions uh, of their lifters. The perceptions of competence one is interesting because I know within powerlifting clubs, you've got PB boards, like look at Westside um, and their famous PB board. But some of the lifters and powerlifters I work with who are elite of the elite and competing at Paralympic level, have PB boards for their rep maxes on very nuanced exercises. And again, it's a perception of competence if you can get an eight rep max on a JM press. If that's that that's something that maybe a beginner wouldn't track. They're only they're only tracking their bench press and not actually all the different variations to expose them to new ground and new territory of competence. So I suppose, how does how does the beginner or the, the person who might drop out conceptualize their competence would be an issue? I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Pete or Arthur, if you have any thoughts on those. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting that you bring up that uh, perceptions of comf- uh, competence and motivation in general, because that's actually one of the theoretical frameworks that explains burnout or one of the potential explanations for burnout. Uh, and it's based around self-determination theory. So that's basically the idea that we're motivated by these three different drives, the need for uh, autonomy, which is just feeling like we need to be in control of, of what's going on in our lives. Um, relatedness, which is just the need to feel like we belong to a particular group uh, and perceived competence, which you mentioned, which, just, which was just the need to feel like we're good at stuff. And when those needs are, are satisfied, when those three things are taken care of, we're what's called intrinsically motivated. Yeah, so we do things for, for, for the love of it because we enjoy it, because we get something out of it. But it's a continuum, yeah? So at the other end, um, if, if we're not having those needs met, if we're not satisfying the need to be in control, to be related, to feel like we're good at things, then what's driving us is really external we are extrinsically motivated we're doing what we're doing because of some sort of controlling factor people's expectations external rewards whatever that might be and there are a couple of research studies out there that have shown that if we are more intrinsically motivated we're actually less likely to burn out whereas if we are more extrinsically motivated we're more likely to burn out so absolutely increasing or or finding ways of increasing those perceptions of competence or helping people feel like they're in a little bit more control over what they're doing. Uh, and even the social aspect, the belonging aspect, if we can help to do that, um, then like I say, the research suggests that we're less likely to, to burn out and therefore less likely to drop out and withdraw from sport altogether. More controlled motivation, more extrinsic motivation is associated with higher levels of burnout. Um, I think, you know, I wanted to. I wanted to actually bring up the word investment, um, because the idea of like dropout or burnout occurring um, is maybe you know, we're looking at the wrong end of the stick, and actually coaches can maybe frame 
uh, the what they offer and clubs should frame what they offer as why would you actually invest in powerlifting? Um, and I think you know you've you've hit the idea about competitions and and hitting PBs. And look, everybody likes to win a competition. Um, everybody likes to uh, hit a PB. But actually, why is, I mean, and this is a question for you, Arthur, like, why do you think powerlifting is worth investing in uh, for somebody across their lifespan? Um, any thoughts there? So it's funny you're asking me this because I, I wanted to run this by you because t- to be brutally honest with you, I'm not I'm not too sure. Um, like, if you look at why someone gets into powerlifting in the first place, it's because they enjoy lifting heavy weights at the, at the, at the essence of it. Um, and that can, that can change somewhat over the course of however long they're in powerlifting. So for instance, maybe it's, it's not just that they like lifting heavy, but they're really pushing for PBs in the, in the squat bench and deadlift. Um, or maybe they're highly motivated by getting a medal placing at a particular event. Um, th- so th- they might change slightly and perhaps maybe become more extrinsic in, in, their, in their motivations. But when I observe people who have managed to stay at it a long time, actually, the person I would point towards as kind of a model for longevity in, in powerlifting is probably Gar Ben, to be honest with you. And let me explain to you why. So Gar has been powerlifting about seven or eight years now. And he has, at different times, uh, taken extended periods of time off competing. Not training, but competing. And he'll just allow uh, the, the intensity of... I don't mean the intensity of his training necessarily, but the intensity of, the intensity of effort in powerlifting um, to just ebb and flow a little bit depending on where he is in his life. So, for instance, about five years ago, when all of us were really excited about powerlifting and probably still towards the latter end of the beginner's gain stage, um, all gearing up for a particular meet in the early part of the year, um, he kind of turned to me one day and said, you know what, man, I, I think I'm going to sit this one out. And, of course, us being the naive young folk that we are and very short-sighted, saying, she's a... Gar's dropping out of powerlifting, lads, you know? Like, the, the, the world's coming to an end. We won't be able to go to meets together. Um, whereas in reality, he just he just took two years off. And then he came back far stronger and probably didn't run himself into the ground to the extent that he might have. Because that was coinciding with uh, around the same time where he really needed to, he really needed to invest in the gym if it was going to work um, and be as the success that it is now. Then when he's had periods where maybe he has more staff in the gym, um, things are easier at home. His 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 son maybe isn't uh, waking him multiple times throughout the night. Um, you know when he was when he was a small baby. Uh, then he's able to kind of say, right now I'm in a position where I can devote more resources to powerlifting. I might do this meet now in in three or four months time, but it's never been so extrinsically driven that he's like, no, I, I have to, I have to do this meet because I have to get to nationals so that I can have a shot at getting third place at nationals and like really obsessing over it and like driving himself into the ground to the point where like something's going to break. Either he's going to get fed up of it or he's going to hurt himself or both. Um, Not really sure if that's answering your question, but that that's, that's a, 
that's a, something I would turn to as almost like a model for people to say, that's how you achieve longevity in powerlifting. It's not like trying to do as many meets as you can, um, even when your life circumstances probably aren't allowing for it. So like I was saying to you before, um, when we were chatting just off air last week, um, about, I, I think we got it wrong a few years ago when we were saying to people, you know, if you're new into powerlifting, I'd really recommend that you do as many comps as you can just go dive headfirst into it, um, and gain as much experience as you possibly can. That probably in hindsight, wasn't the best advice to be giving people because it's probably pushing them down this road of obsessing over the sport and pushing themselves um, to, you know, to follow really hyper-specific, high-intensity programs because they're jumping from one meet to the next. So it's like one peak and block to the next peak and block. And they're not giving themselves proper downtime to both physically and mentally give themselves a bit of a break and be able to recharge and then maybe look at a meet that's further down the line, give themselves a good uh, volume block or preparation phase or whatever you want to call it. And then maybe because they've had that bit of time off, they've built up a bit of physical resilience and they're less likely to pick up injuries. Yeah, I really don't know if I've answered your question. I'm so sorry, but uh, I, I, <laughs> I, said, I said a lot. Hopefully it makes sense. <laughs> I think actually, you know, you, you did answer the question because like I'm relating that straight on to the paper, the systematic review I talked about, which is competing priorities, you know, personal life, whether or not you've got a child, whether or not you've got to run a business, those are competing priorities and those are going to change for athletes. Uh, and again, if you're a coach listening to this and you're thinking, right, how am I going to lose my 10 powerlifters? Like what stage of life are they at? Are they a student? Are they going to get into a dodgy relationship um whereby the, the the relationship becomes more important than the the sport and other aspects of the life uh are they going to change jobs are they going to move house change locations so there'll be competing priorities maybe they have uh, responsibilities at home that again are going to affect it and it's about taking those into uh into account so that they can maybe say right okay the next two years of your life are going to be difficult here's how we put in place uh, a program so you can maintain powerlifting and then later on open it up a bit more full throttle and go for competitions um but i think also the other aspect you mentioned there is like about getting physically injured and i think people don't respect injuries enough in non-professional sport because injuries are things that um can for an athlete take them out for three to six weeks but for a recreational athlete they can completely destroy someone's commitment to that sport to the point where you see people buy all the gear do all the training get a, a fairly semi-serious injury and just pack it in um but again another point that you you picked up on related to literature is like how many comps should a should a beginner athlete do and there's research in the journal of strength and conditioning from pearson about the effect of competition frequency on strength performance of powerlifting athletes and that actually points towards uh ultimate performance dropping after the fourth competition in the year but peak performance occurred uh around about for most in the second competition so like how often is competing necessary for you to have a career in powerlifting or what's an optimal level of that and at a certain point there's going to be a, a contraindication a downside 
to the amount of competing you do. So I think then as a coach, to go back to your points are like understand the competing priorities and understand the long-term game of strength development. It's not about uh, doing everything and achieving everything in one year. Um, what does the 10-year plan look like? Um, I think uh, I thought I was going to get a different answer from you, Arthur, if I'm honest. I thought I was going to hear something about growing growing big muscles is useful for your mental health and yeah. <laughs> also for your ability to move height and, and to bully people if you need to bully them. Um, like I think there's loads of benefits to powerlifting that go way beyond actually getting a medal around your neck or even putting on a bit of lycra because you don't need powerlifting to wear lycra. Right. And I suppose that was the thing I wanted to run by you because that's all well and good. But like from, from your from your experience and, and Pete, maybe you can chime in on this as well. Like, how do I actually convince particularly like a younger individual who has, you know, who has a very short sighted vision about where they're going with their powerlifting career or what have you. Um, how do I convince them that some of these things are worthwhile investing in rather than like all they're interested in is PBs and, training hard all the time Pete? oh you're waiting for me to answer that one yeah. um a, a couple of things that that jumped out when you were when both of you guys were just talking there actually um there's some probably the last 10 years or so there's research coming out of scandinavia uh that's explored the role of work home interference so work-life balance that kind of ties into some of the things that you were saying um and recovery and the lack of recovery as being major determinants of burnout. Um, and, you know, it's all very well and good. And the culture of sport in itself kind of promotes this idea of just going hell for leather all the time, constantly. Uh, like you say, getting those PBs. And again, in a sport like powerlifting, where the PBs come early and then start to dry up, uh, that can be quite a difficult thing to, to, to deal with and to handle. So, you know, really emphasizing the idea that actually as an, as an athlete or as somebody who is trying to be an athlete, um, recovery is part of that process. Recovery is just as important as the hours that you spend in the gym. It's, it's part of being an athlete, not something that you do uh, in addition to it if you've got time for it. Because we know that the consequences of inadequate recovery and not recovering uh, can, be, can be pretty bad, I guess. The other thing that jumped out uh, was, Hugh, you were talking about... Um, athletes who are getting all of the gear and kind of getting into this and then all of a sudden they get injured um and what i was thinking was well that's somebody who's developing a really strong identity around being a power lifter uh you know they're going out and they're getting all of this stuff and they are that, that their identity is tied into that and again when things stop potentially going your way so the pbs dry up uh, or you get injured or whatever that stops you from engaging with that part of your identity again that can be a difficult thing to deal with and can lead to those feelings of burnout so i think in terms of in terms of solutions and suggestions it's encouraging athletes to develop other areas of their identity that are important to them you know not, not just in powerlifting outside of powerlifting uh, outside of sport making sure that their identities are multifaceted that there's lots of stuff going on um, I think 
like I say, ensuring that kind of adequate rest and recovery. But this is this is something that's a, a cultural thing within sport. You know, the culture of sport itself leads to people developing that almost singular identity. Uh, and as coaches and as fellow athletes, we can almost find ourselves encouraging that. Like, yeah, this is really important. Yeah, powerlifting is the most important thing. You know, you got to come here, you got to train, you got to do this, you got to do that. Like you were saying earlier, Arthur, you are encouraging people to attend as many competitions as they can. What we're really doing is we're strongly encouraging that athletic identity uh, to develop. And I think that can be potentially a harmful thing to do. Uh, like I said, down the line when things start to not necessarily go the way that we might want them to. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I suppose how I, when I thought about that a bit more, so if we say that like encouraging people to do, you know, as many comps as you can when you're starting off, you know, just just dive right in, go headfirst into powerlifting. And instead if I adopted approach of like, here, you've been training a couple of years, you squat bench and you deadlift, maybe try this powerlifting meet. If you enjoy it, great um but we won't we won't kind of push you into to do another one straight after i'd prefer if you actually went back and just did some low intensity training with a bit more variation uh for a few months or perhaps even a year and then if you turn around to me at that stage and say hey arthur uh i enjoyed that powerlifting meet i did there last year uh, i was thinking of doing another one i'm like well great because you've managed to accumulate more training time uh hopefully you didn't fuck yourself up in that time at, at that point then you know maybe you're better off going into that second meet and then that fosters a healthier relationship with powerlifting potentially um because it's not this obsessive this is all-encompassing kind of thing um d- does that make sense it does yeah and it's, it's a difficult balance as well isn't it because you want to push people to do as well as they can and you want to push people to do uh, as much as they can in the sport but you know, it sounds cliched, but it just it depends on the person that you're working with and you have to kind of read them. And if they're really hungry for it and you can see that and they need that little bit of encouragement and, and, and development, then absolutely give that. But just being cognizant of the fact that, you know, they're a human being and there's other stuff going on in their life. Uh, and, and like we said before, that, that work-home interference, that work-life balance, the career transitions or the, the personal transitions that people are going through, you know, 17, 18-year-old kid, well, what else are they doing? They're transitioning out of school. They're transitioning into adulthood. You know, there's lots of other things that are happening um, that we need to be aware of. And it can't just be, right, you need to do this competition, you need to do this, you need to keep training, blah, 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 because something's going to give at some point. I think it's very easy for a coach to become a fascist. Um, and I, 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 I actually mean this, and it actually takes a good coach to become a fascist, not, not a bad coach. Um, so I had this experience with uh, a coach developer who really good and he was working with us and I was like saying like look we need our coaches to come in and work with our development squads and we need our coaches to do this do this ask these types of questions review practice this way and then set some goals this way and do this and just laid out what we expected of these developing coaches who were working with our development squad and I said, can we not just tell them how to do it and give them this framework? And the guy turned around and said, yes, we could, Hugh, but that would be fascist and you would be a fascist then. And I, like, <laughs> I thought about it. He was right. I was being a bit fascist. I was like dictating. And I think this is the problem is like when you've got people who really give a shit about the job and see how things could be done better, 
they really want that to happen. And as a coach, mostly who is driven by the strong intrinsic need of, you know, making powerlifting work, you can come up with the solutions for your athletes. And actually what the long-term solution is, is a collaborative approach of asking the athlete, look, what is it is going to work for you now? Is a competition going to work for you? Or is five competitions going to work for you? And what would be good? And what are the risks? And then at the point where they say something completely stupid, that's when the coaching hat comes on and going, you go, ah, gee, I don't think that's that's the right thing because you're not aware of this blind spot yet. You know, you can't go and deadlift every day of the week, that that type of a thing. Mm-hmm. So coaches there to support and then to also um, watch out for the blind spot that the rookies make. And I think that that's the best way to approach coaching. And again, like, I've been a coaching fascist myself at times. Um, I think it's important to realize that you can, because you care so much, want that. But I was going to say something else, but I think maybe that's enough of a rant. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I I understand what you mean because, like, at the same time, I, I feel like it's this yin and yang between. Um, we want to push our athletes because we want to get them as good as they possibly can. But at the same time, we have the reservations there because of some of the potential uh, negative consequences of them becoming obsessively invested in the sport. And when then that when that coincides with um, the, the, the performance is not being there or they're getting a nasty injury or perhaps like the worst is probably a reoccurring injury. Right. You know because something you thought that you were over and then it keeps it keeps coming back you know when you think you're over the hill of it it and it it comes back and it bites you again that's when those periods of frustration can kind of set in and you're probably more inclined to say well screw this why am i why am i even doing this you know um and i'd say that has parallels with a lot of other sports yeah i think um the the physical factors as i mentioned earlier one of those is injury and i think when you think of reoccurring injuries as well like that has a massive impact on the social uh side of things because if if you are not powerlifting then where do you go for the crack you know if you've got a strong social connection to your gym or you're injured so you, you what you don't turn up to the gym now and it's it's things like that we say if you're an injured you're, you're coming up and you're doing what you can and you're working around it because your social connection is just as important a reason to be a part of the sport as the physical benefits that you might derive or performance benefits so you know yeah if you've if you've got that social connection it's important that injuries don't cut it off pete have you any thoughts on this yeah i think that's a again a fine line to tread with athletes because i know certainly uh from my experience in basketball you know injured athletes yes you want them to be part of the the social group and to stay there and to main that sense of relatedness like we talked about earlier you know it's one of those three basic needs for for motivation but at the same time you know you have to be careful about saying okay well you're injured and you can't compete but i want you to still come to this environment and look at all of the things that you can't do right now um so i i I agree if it were me if i were a coach i would want to bring athletes into that environment and kind of keep them part of that circle but it's got to be a discussion and a personal choice because that you know I've come across athletes before who they if they're injured and they can't compete they don't want to be in that environment 
they don't want to see it because that's actually more harmful to them psychologically than it is to, to be part of it so it's a a balance and a, and a consideration same with anything isn't it it's 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 a discussion to be had uh rather than dictating one way or the other um i, I want to have a go at uh, asking a, a question i asked earlier on and i i just feel like i asked it really poorly <laughs> so what i want to know is you and i want you to lean on your your uh, working in the field here um with weightlifting and with the para powerlifters so let's say, for instance, you have an athlete that has hit their last PB and they're starting to kind of second guess why they're even in the sport. What are some of the things that you might be like? Do you try to convince them to stay in the sport? And if so, what are some of the things that you would you would uh, you would dangle in front of them as incentives to stay involved? You know that's uh, that's interesting because my gut reaction is no, get them out of the sport as fast as possible, um, and and that's literally because I'm talking about people who are the most elite athletes who are training, you know, maybe twelve times a week, who have spent uh, decades of their life sacrificing many other aspects of their life to achieve that level of performance, and I think it's a different thing from your national level lifter, uh, from your participation person, your journeyman in the sport. I think powerlifting um, as a sport for a general person, like I wish my parents would do it so that they, you know, don't end up in a home uh, whenever 10, 20 years from now, because it has that sort of health benefits. But for somebody who's working or performing at Olympic or Paralympic level, I think actually you need to pull back a bit. There needs to be a healthier way of being involved in that and also developing other aspects of your identity, as Pete mentioned earlier. Something I actually do with athletes um, to point out when they're close to burnout is I say, look at your Instagram. And maybe it doesn't work nowadays because everything's all controlled. But like a few years ago, you looked at somebody's Instagram and you would have got maybe 20 or 30 pictures of their sport and then a couple of other activities um, that they do. I say that's what your identity looks like, what you're putting out to the world. Whereas maybe somebody who's a bit more multifaceted in their identity has like, oh, look, here's me doing a bit of gardening. Here's me walking the dog. Here's me doing a competition. So it's like how much of your identity um, is made up of sport. Uh, and when it's just, I've, I've used this analogy before, and Pete knows what's coming. Do you want to tell it, Pete? <laughs> No, you go. Well, you tell it so much better than I do. It's it's like you say to an athlete, you know, right? You're like a banjo. You, you've got like six strings, and if you've only got one string, and that one string is powerlifting, then you're a shit banjo. And if that one banjo string breaks, then you're just completely useless. So to be a healthy banjo, to play a good tune, you need to have more than just one banjo string. You need to have multiple banjo strings to. Uh, play a good tune so it's like those different facets or facets of your life um or those different strings are, are different facets of your life so you have to have multiple of them um so i think my for an elite athlete no they need need to broaden their identity for a, a recreational level athlete staying engaged for power lifting throughout the life course and it, they've set some PBs and they want to maybe pull back a bit I think that's fine, but what's the minimum? Like, 
I think something like two sessions a week, uh, three main lifts a, a week, um, maybe even four main lifts a week uh, for 10 years would, would change a population if that was coming back to my fascist roots and forced upon the population of the world. Like, do the mo- minimum you can do for 10 years. That would make powerlifting a healthy sport. Like, what's the, what's the minimum in sport that we can do um, to maintain a lifelong uh, benefit from it and, and make something of the bastard sport, as your friend said. Does that answer your question, Arthur, or have I gone nuts? No, it does. Yeah, that, that definitely it does. Um, the only thing is, though, I think you're presuming I can play a musical instrument, uh, which I can't. So <laughs> that analogy is just lost to me. I have no idea what you're talking about there. <laughs> well, look, um, I'm, I'm going to stop digging that hole. you know just just again thoughts that spring into mind when you when you're talking there Hugh in terms of what we can actually do to help athletes develop you know those multiple aspects of their their personality to help them uh get more than one string on their banjo that they don't have to be complicated things that's something that as a club it's a culture that you can develop and it's very simple you just you know, let's find out something about somebody else other than what PB they hit last week. You know, oh, how's your mom? Uh, like, how's your brother? Like, just find find other things out about them. Oh, you know, I heard you did something else last week. You know, how did that go or, or, or whatever? But just really kind of simple things. So we're not just talking about powerlifting all the time, you know? And and that's something that, again, culturally just, just develops. And then all of a sudden you have a club where people are talking about other things and other aspects of their, their personality. And it just helps that develop, I think. I think um, that's really important. Uh, if you look at how CrossFit has been a success, the community aspect of CrossFit make CrossFit something that's sustainable. And I think that how does powerlifting do that? Um, and how do powerlifting clubs seek to build their communities because you can't you can walk away from a sport but it's much harder to walk away from a community um so yeah i totally agree with that pete would you go so far as to say create a cult <laughs> look you can't create a culture if you don't have a cult <laughs> oh very good yeah i i i I'm not a fan of CrossFit, but I think, as Hugh says, in terms of creating that community, and I think that's a really important part of um, like lifelong participation in sport and physical activity. If people aren't competing anymore, how do you keep them in the sport? How do you keep them doing uh, or staying physically active? And creating that community is, is, is a really important part of that. So while... I don't want to get sued by calling them a cult. Um, <laughs> they do they do that pretty well, you know that that community aspect of, of keeping people engaged, and, and we're seeing a lot more of that now. You know, there's uh, like the tribe fitness gyms and you know the other other places as well, and they're all based around this idea of, of community involvement and and people keeping each other accountable and and and, and socializing and so on and so forth. So. Um, Again, it comes back to the idea of relatedness. It's one of those three basic, you know, needs for motivation. Do we feel like we're part of something? And if we can keep athletes feeling like they're part of something, and we can keep them, 
you know, participating in sport and, and physical activity a lot longer? I think, you know, the, the thing that strikes me is somebody went and took the sport of athletics and diluted it down into jogging. And you had this jogging craze that happened. And I don't think that CrossFit's akin to jogging, but like someone at some point is going to sort of strike the balance of creating a, a jogging component to powerlifting that your granny can do. And at that point, you know, that's when the sport becomes something that's going to be much bigger than it currently is. I think, Arthur, like you've said, this the state, uh, like you can retire into powerlifting, you couldn't really retire into weightlifting uh, to the same extent. And I think that's what powerlifting is. It's a safe sport where you can do big movements, get big benefits. Um, and how what's what's the thing you have to crack to turn that into jogging? Uh, that's something that you could recommend to an older person and um, so that somebody can do it throughout their lifespan. And maybe it is, you know, two times a week, three lifts a week for 10 years. Can, can you achieve that? I don't know. Um, yeah, but, you know, when CrossFit sues Pete, I just want to say that I had nothing to do with this and I didn't endorse anything he said. I just want to go on record and say that I didn't actually say that they were a cult. I said that I didn't want to say they were a cult. Am I making this worse? <laughs> got things the wrong way around so cult. my my audio cut out i was saying that they were a good culture yeah <laughs> i f- i feel like by making that clarification you're implying that you're not saying it but it's what you're thinking <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> i'm gonna stop because i'm gonna risk saying bad things Moving yeah. swi- moving swiftly on. <laughs> <laughs> so, Hugh, you've, obviously we don't have a lot to point to in the literature uh, f- in terms of burnout and powerlifting, but leaning on some of the evidence that's there from other sports, what are some of the, I suppose, patterns that tend to be associated with burnout that you might observe in powerlifting that particularly coaches and athletes need to be aware of to um maybe maybe if they could identify them and and nip them in the bud before it gets into something more serious if that's possible to do so i would say um i'm gonna let pete give a a rundown of that um i'll i'll give a rundown of dropout so for me like the risk factors of dropout are uh the social pressure to do other things and that's going to change at different transition points in the life from student change of jobs change in location uh sexual maturity going from you know a teenager into an adult there'll be different social pressures so how, how are those social pressures going to impact the athlete and what what are the risks uh, that they will then reduce their commitment or approach to powerlifting um, perceptions of competence again are they stopping to see uh, their experiences of competence within the the sport so can you as a coach highlight where they're achieving success and even if that's an achievement of success if you've been to the gym you know every day this week or, or whatever it is it's a what's the quality of competence everyone's quick to say you put one kilo on that lift but who's quick to say you know, that squat looks 10 times better. Look at this video from three months ago. That's just as valuable source of competence as well. 
um, actually do they enjoy it? And if and it's the same with all strength sports, you go through dark phases where you know the sun and the moon don't align, and you end up suffering for weeks at a time to try and get somewhere with it. Like, why are they not enjoying it? Why is it so difficult? Is it is it the lack of recovery, sleep, nutrition, etc., that's stalling the progress? So finding something they enjoy, and sometimes it might just be about suffering together as a group. So like if you've got a group of people going through a tough training block, like let them enjoy the suffering together so they can find some sense of enjoyment out of it. Um, and then the the physical factors, injury. Look, injury is going to be the thing that's going to increase the risk of dropout because automatically that changes their commitment to the sport and especially repeat injury. So an accurate injury history of the athlete and then how you plan to work around that and how you plan to ensure that what are the early warning signs. Um, so, and again, injuries injuries occur because people make stupid decisions. I, I think people assume that injuries are accidents and that's bullshit um, because if you drew, reduce all your lifts by 10 kilo, you wouldn't have got injured. You know, So whatever it is on that day that you got injured, it occurred because you took a risk and you didn't manage that risk properly so you need to develop adequate decision making skills to mitigate risk um so that would be my main thing and then if i was to summarize that up in terms of dropout you've also got like interpersonal how you feel about the sport interpersonal are other people that being assholes do you need to change the dynamic in the club do you need to remove somebody who's an asshole um and then structural like are the times uh, and the logistics of how the club operates important again that those are identified within literature for dropout um so that would be my rundown of what are the warning signs and how to approach that um pete i think you, you're more well versed in the burnout literature and i think that's where it differs a bit um so what are we talking about the sort of risk factors warning signs um i think there's a lot yeah. of overlap uh, I think there's a lot of overlap between between burnout and and dropout. Like we said at the start, I think dropout is essentially a, a consequence, or it can be anyway, a consequence of of burning out. But I guess in terms of some of the the risk factors um, and warning signs, uh, we talked already about the culture of of sport in itself. And one of the one of the things that's it's kind of a bit of a bugbear of mine is in, in in sport we have this idea, and I guess especially in strength sports, really this these ideas around toughness and strength and grit and resilience and never backing off and always powering on through and all of those things uh, present a picture of sport as something where it's really difficult for us to show any sort of vulnerability and ask for any sort of help or say, do you know what? I'm kind of tired this week, so I'm going to back off a little bit. And the, culture of sport itself a lot of times doesn't allow us to do that and i think that is a, a real real risk factor for burnout because athletes are hesitant to, to to show that vulnerability and will carry on plowing through and plowing through and plowing through and that's when they start to become more and more exhausted and they stop seeing the benefits and it's just kind of this big cycle uh that ends up with them experiencing burnout um i think the experience of, of stress as part of that. Uh, and stress is a funny thing because st st stress is essentially, stress is what happens when there's an imbalance between 
the demands that we face and our ability to cope with those demands, right? So if you picture it like a seesaw, on one side of the seesaw, there's all of the things that are going on that are placing demands on us. And on the other side, or all of the, or, or how, on the other side is how we perceive that we are able to cope with those things. So when that scale tips or when that seesaw tips, that that's when we experience stress. Now, the interesting thing about that is that it doesn't have to be a real big heavy thing to tip that scale for us to experience stress. It can be the tiniest little thing that throws us out of balance. So like not being able to find our keys in the morning, right? Or somebody ringing up trying to sell us double glazing when we're busy doing something else. It doesn't have to be a huge thing that causes us stress. So being aware of all of the things that are going on in somebody's life outside of sport, all of those other little things, um, I, I, I think is really helpful in perhaps avoiding uh, that experience of stress. And of course, burnout is thought to be a response to chronically experiencing stress, right? So understanding all of those other demands that are placed on people, helping them develop some more coping resources, strengthening their uh, social support, strengthening that sense of belonging that we talked about earlier, all of those things I think are helpful in avoiding um, the, the the stress that people experience and therefore their experience of burnout as well. Um, and finally, I think, again, it's stuff that we've talked about already or, or touched upon already is this idea of commitment um, and the way in which people are committed to their sport. And we can keep an eye on that. So this uh, research by a guy called Tom Radicke suggested that people are committed to sport for a number of different reasons. So people are either committed because they're really attracted to the sport because they see that they're getting a lot out of it, or they're committed because they are entrapped in the sport. So there aren't that many benefits to it. The costs are quite high, but they're so invested in it. You talked about investment before, Hugh. They're so invested in the sport, and there aren't really many alternatives for them to do. Uh, so they are kind of trapped in this in this sport, and so they're committed for that reason. And again, people who are entrapped in their sport or committed for that reason are more likely to experience burnout. So we can keep an eye on that and we can keep an eye on the ways in which people are committed to their sport, what their motivation is. Again, we talked about intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation before. Um, so I think understanding all of those things means that we can potentially identify people who are maybe more at risk of, of burnout. Uh, perfectionism is another one if we... Uh, seeing people who have high levels of perfectionism or perfectionistic uh, concerns. So the people who are worried about making mistakes um, is another thing that's associated with burnout. So these are all little things that we can just keep an eye out and watch for uh, and potentially do something about. Mm. Yeah, the, the perfectionism, uh, I'm, gl I'm glad you brought that up because that was one that I was thinking about there recently. And that's that's one you see all the time whereby, you know, someone has a training program laid out in a particular way and for whatever um reason uh it's not completed in it's not followed to the to the the letter of the plan that was laid out mm -hmm. and you know there's obviously feelings of frustration and almost to the point of the athlete feels like they failed but it's like it was it was just a plan it's just a it's an editable file it's a google sheets or a microsoft excel um spreadsheet it's not something that's set in stone that defines your worth as a as an athlete yeah would you have any thoughts on that he, he's smiling so i don't know if he's got something to say but i guess what i what i would say on that is you know perfectionist perfectionism is 
multidimensional. So it's not just this one thing. So we can have what's called perfectionistic strivings, which is where we just have really high personal standards. Um, and that's actually associated with lower levels of burnout, just having high standards and wanting to maintain them. That's, I don't want to call it healthy perfectionism, but that's how you might look at it. And then there's something called perfectionistic concerns, which is where we are seeking to be perfectionistic, but it's because we're worried about doing stuff wrong. We're worried about making mistakes, essentially. And that type of perf perfectionism is associated with uh, higher levels of, of burnout. And there's a couple of longitudinal studies that suggest that actually perfectionist, can't say it, perfectionistic concerns um, precede burnout. They come before burnout. Um, so some of the research points to that. So again, if we're seeing people who have those perfectionistic concerns, so they're like, you know, uh, really concerned and worried about making mistakes or not doing things quite right, or like you said, kind of not living up to their uh, performance plan, maybe that's something again that we could look out to. But perfectionism in terms of just having high standards for yourself, I think is, uh, again, the research suggests that that's actually an okay thing to have. It can maybe even be protective of, of burnout. Terrific. Uh, so I'm I'm really conscious and appreciative of your time, guys. So um, I won't keep you too much longer. But there's just one final question I want to run by you. So, Pete, you've noted that obviously your area of expertise is in burnout and more so relating to the coaches. Obviously, there's overlap with the athletes and that. But I suppose I don't want to downplay the coaches. But I I recognise that thus far we have been focusing on the athlete. So my final question is this so in your in your work and dealing with coaches and Hugh obviously this includes you as well um how how aware are coaches generally have you found of, of some of these things that can lead to burnout and and dropout and if if the answer is not very like where do you start there in terms of informing them so that uh they can improve their practice to you know, to, to ultimately benefit their athletes. Um, I don't know what your thoughts on this are, Hugh, but generally I've found that coaches are much more aware of this stuff when it comes to dealing with their athletes and much less aware of this stuff when it comes to dealing with themselves. Um, so they are perhaps aware of a lot of the stresses that athletes have to deal with and they are aware of some of the things that might lead to burnout. They just find it difficult to recognize that uh, in themselves and deal with it themselves, which again has a knock on impact on their athletes. Uh, Hugh, I don't know what you have, if you have any thoughts on, on that as well. Um, I suppose myself and Pete were actually discussing uh, things earlier, and Pete asked the question to me, Are you close to the red line? And I, I, you know, he's never asked me that question before, but I, I thought, yeah, I definitely am close to the red line because I've got a lot on this month. And I think I know what my warning signs are as to when I have too much on and when I might be close to burnout. But actually that activity of a coach knowing what their personal uh, warn warning signs are or what their red line is. Um, and I think that, that can be very illuminating because very often, you know, myself and people talk about what the research and the literature says but we as applied practitioners need to build a personal model for that athlete or for that coach 
So you need to sit down as a coach and go, personally, I know uh, I am under pressure whenever I come home and go, oh, uh, I just can't cope. I need to go to bed early tonight. Or I'm having these thoughts of everything's falling to shit and I'm worried about things. Or maybe you come home and go, oh, do you know what? I'm absolutely wrecked. I need a beer and it's only Monday. You know, it's it's whatever the reactionary thing that you do to that pressure uh, to cope. And it may be a good coping skill or a bad coping skill, but if you're reacting to the pressure and you're putting in place a coping skill, you need to realize then you must be close to a red line. And actually, uh, I actually have on my hand here written the word no. And that's because I know I'm close to the red line. And I need to say to myself, I'm not taking on any more responsibilities. I can't take on any more work. If somebody asks me for something, the answer is going to be no. So it's it's knowing those strategies to get get pull yourself back. I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Pete. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Uh, I think just to add to that, it's it's about understanding what your coping strategies might be, but it's also understanding when the way that you react to some of that stuff is different to how it normally is because sport is pressured. Uh, whether you're an athlete or a coach, there are going to be times when you're experiencing a lot of pressure, heavy training load, pre-competition, you know, and how you respond in those situations might be different to how you respond, uh, you know, in, in, in times of less pressure and less stress. But it's understanding or, or being aware of when the way that you're responding to something is significantly different to how it normally is. So in those times of extreme stress and pressure, these are the ways that I normally deal with it. Am I doing something that's maybe a little bit different, a little bit extreme? Am I having that extra gin before bed on a Tuesday night? You know, am I, uh, you know, taking it, am I, you know, close to the red line and being a little bit more angry than usual and taking it out on other people? Are my responses to these stresses different to how they normally are? Um, so it's when, when you notice that happening, that's probably when, you are getting close to uh, experiencing those symptoms and signs of burnout. Tremendous. Uh, that's That was absolutely fantastic. Uh, so just conscious of time there now, guys, so I suppose um, we'll start to kind of wrap things up. Just before we say our goodbyes, is there anything in the broader sort of scope of this discussion that you would have liked to outline that thus far my questioning hasn't afforded you the opportunity to do so? I don't think so. Um, I think I, w what I would like to just reiterate is this idea of vulnerability in a, in a world of sport where vulnerability isn't necessarily seen as something that we do and just how important that can be in terms of avoiding burnout. Um, just even just something as, as simple as saying, I'm kind of tired, you know, you know, I just haven't got it this week. Even just admitting that is something that I think a lot of people and a lot of athletes would shy away from doing. Um, so for me, it would be just emphasizing how important vulnerability can be and showing that vulnerability uh, can be in, in making sure that, you know, we're enhancing our, our mental well-being. Yeah. And I suppose shying away from that is, kind of a thing that's rooted in tradition isn't it like you don't want to show vulnerability because it's it's seen as a sign of weakness mm -hmm. yeah I, I, exactly that and 
again, you know, I've, I've, I've talked about the culture of sport a lot, and obviously it's very different in different sports, and people handle this stuff very differently. But generally speaking, I think, and we're getting better at that. We're seeing a lot more athletes talking about their mental health and a lot more coaches openly talking about their mental health uh, in sport. So we're certainly moving in the right direction. But I think that if, you know, if we can help athletes to do that, uh, if we can normalize the idea that actually being a little bit vulnerable is an okay thing to do if we can model it ourselves as maybe the more experienced athletes or as the coaches in that situation uh, then i think that'll go a long way to to really changing that culture to one where we're okay with asking for a bit of help and we're okay with you know showing that we are maybe struggling with something i think i think to add on that is that you know knowing what to do when somebody is a bit vulnerable and says look actually i'm feeling a bit uh, under the weather, a bit run down, a bit, you know, pushed out, um, that it's it's okay not to know what to do. It's so, But the best thing that you can do is just acknowledge it and validate it and listen. And, you know, it's if somebody says, look, I'm not coping with this, this injury is shit, I feel as if powerlifting has taken over my life, I feel as if I don't have the time or resources to do this, say, look, that's okay, you know, where do we take the pressure off? Where's the release valve here for you? And and what do you need to dial back uh, by 5% or 50% to, to make this something that is hmm. that you can enjoy again? And I think going back to the perfectionistic point, you get a lot of, uh, and I think it, it's something that I, I tend to adopt sometimes is uh, it's, it's all or nothing. You know, you're either doing it or you're not doing it. And I think that's completely the wrong approach. I think it's uh, all or something, or maybe nothing or something, is is a better better approach. Um, that you can work between a range that enco- encompasses non- nothing, something, and everything, um, and that's what longevity is about: is working between that full range and not holding yourself to really high standards. So, if somebody does come with you with some vulnerability, help them help them let the pressure off and and ask them, you know, what do they need to change that they can stop um because it's not the end of the world um and if it was the end of the world then it sure wouldn't matter anyway lovely stuff right so that just about brings us to the end folks uh, once again i'd like to reiterate my my gratitude to both of you for giving up your time to to chat to me this has been an extremely enjoyable and thought-provoking discussion um hugh did you have something to add there can i can i just get a plug-in Go for it. Okay. I want to plug the 80% Metal podcast. Um, go and listen to it. But I also want to plug uh, a course that I've got out at the moment. Um, so check it out. It's on my my uh, Twitter uh, and other social feeds. It's called Harnessing Communication for Performance Enhancement. And it's all about those communication skills that people need uh, to basically enhance performance through listening better, asking better questions and understanding each other so it's definitely one for coaches so if you're interested in that check out my socials it'll be on my link tree in the first link um so that's the one thing i wanted to throw in there cheeky plug nice one (laughs) i was i was actually just going to ask that very question if there's anywhere that people can follow you online or check out your work um i'm also going to plug the 80 percent mental podcast because it's absolutely uh, fantastic I, I would really really encourage listeners to, to go check it out um, and I've said that twice now 
uh, and I don't, I don't, I don't often endorse things, so that should be I mean, not even paying you to do it either. <laughs> that should say enough. Um, can can I plug because we're obviously going to uh, release this on the eighty percent metal podcast as well um, at some point with with you, Arthur. Um, do you have an OnlyFans account that we can recommend our listeners go to follow you or anything like that? Um, I I do, but I don't think I got the memo. Um. So I just set up this page where uh, I have different pictures of crowds of supporters at events and uh, motorized fans. Um, so I think I, I, I think I read the description wrong because um, that doesn't seem to be in line with the rest of the content on the site. Uh, right. Okay, that explains a lot. Um, I, I think what, what, I, what I find interesting about you, Arthur, uh, and... Uh, the No Lift podcast for those 80% mental fans that are listening to this is that Arthur's one of the, the people who likes to exist in the background, so much so that at events uh, in Ireland, there's cardboard cutouts of him so that people can go and get the pictures taken beside um, so that he doesn't have to interact with people. Um, so that's an interesting story about Arthur. <laughs> yeah, to be honest, the cardboard cutout is probably more well-known than I am. People people <laughs> even wonder who it is because they never see me in the flesh. <laughs> um, I, wonder, I wonder if that would work for my lectures. <laughs> for your you know, it's, it's funny, actually, because sometimes they leave it in particular places just to get a reaction. Like, So, for instance, there's a, a toilet inside in the gym that has an automatic light that only turns on when you open the door. And they stick the cardboard cutout in there sometimes, so that when the light turns on, they get an awful fright, or leave it out at the front door, so that uh, like there's a there's a window, um, do you know what about like chest height or so, so they'll stick the cardboard cutout in place so that it looks like I'm standing there, and someone will ring the doorbell, and then they'll be fuming, wondering why I'm not answering it for them. It's <laughs> amazing. Oh, it's it's great fun. Um, Pete, just before we finish up, anywhere that people can follow you and check out the rest of your work? Um, best place to go is probably to Twitter, where I spend far too much of my time. Uh, and if people check out at EPM podcast, uh, both mine and Hugh's Twitter handles are in the link on that page. That's probably the easiest way to get to to both of us. Great stuff. Um, gents, it's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you once again for for giving up your time to chat to me. Um, I really think this is going to be a very insightful and, and helpful discussion for a lot of listeners. Uh, so so thank you again once more for for sharing your knowledge and your insights with me. No, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Arthur. And for the 80% mental fans who are listening to this on our site, please go and check out uh, the No Lift, Podca no Lift podcast. Uh, I'll on... try that one more time here. <laughs> Okay, please go and check out the No Lift podcast um, and it's on Spotify and all the podcast spaces you get them and check out Arthur Lynch on Instagram and No Lift podcast on Instagram as well. I believe that's where you're located the most. Bang on. <laughs> Cheers, guys. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, Arthur. It's awesome, awesome uh, to meet you and awesome to, to come on and, and chat about this stuff. Yeah. Talk to you soon, guys. Cheers. Bye.
So, Pete, we've just uh, listened to the No Lift podcast with Arthur Lynch and ourselves, um, all about burnout and dropout within powerlifting from an athlete perspective. Uh, you brought a lot to the table there again with your academic knowledge. You tend to do that well with your academic knowledge. Is that a thing for you? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's what I do, isn't it? So, um, I'm. I, it's nice to know that it's uh, that it's appreciated. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed doing that this podcast with Arthur. Um, I think one of the one of the keys was understanding the difference between burnout and dropout, and that we can experience burnout without necessarily withdrawing from sport or whatever it is that we do. Uh, burnout's this kind of ongoing experience, and I think you know we are at the end of what has been a particularly difficult year in 2020. And I'm pretty sure a lot of people out there will be experiencing some burnout like symptoms, some emotional exhaustion, a, a, a reduced sense of personal accomplishment. And, you know, certainly a bit of a cynical attitude towards everything that's happening. So, you know, I think it's, it's timely that we, we talked about this sort of thing. It's timely that we, are putting this out on the EPM podcast and I hope that people who've listened to it have been able to take something from it um, and you know some of the ways in which we've taken that theory and that academic knowledge and translated it into some useful practice so I hope that people have been able to take something from that. Brilliant well um, if any of our listeners are interested in anything to do with strength health and fitness uh, the No Lift podcast is definitely uh, a place to go and listen to some interesting views <laughs> across a broad range of guests uh, in, in those topics. Um, and Arthur himself is just a wonderful human being. So uh, big shout out to Arthur. Go and follow him. Mm-hmm.